Amen. Good morning, First Family. If you have your Bible, I hope it's still open to Philippians chapter 3. You might say, but Darren, where, in, where are we and why not Revelation? Don't worry, we'll return to that next week. Not too late to, co- to, to cover the last half of chapter 13. A couple of times a year, however, we like to stop and remind ourselves of who we want to be, what our purpose is, and where we came from. It's important that we do that so that we don't lose sight of it. When we come to a place where we do lose sight of it, we, want, we find ourselves making mistakes. That's why it's important that at various times we pause to remember where we're from. Let's start here. January 10th of this year, we celebrated our 136th anniversary. In January of 1886, a group of people got together and said there needed to be a Baptist witness to the city of Midland. The church has been through a great many journeys since then. Several locations, 20-ish pastors, depending on how you count one who served twice, and a lot of transitions. Praise the Lord that he has been master through it all. Let us pause to rejoice in that. When we forget where we came from, it's easy to lose track of who we're supposed to be. I heard a story to illustrate this not long ago. I don't know if it's true, but it was presented to me as fact, so I'll share it that way. A family had gone to New York for vacation, a family from Texas. They were at the Bronx Zoo. And while there, one of the zookeepers said, oh, you're from Texas. And they identified themselves proudly. After all, I was always told if a man's from Texas, he'll tell you. So if he's not, don't ask him and embarrass him. I don't know if there's any merit to that either. Nevertheless, the zookeeper said, you're from Texas. And they said, yes, of course. And he said, I'm told that Texans are like trained seals. That went over about like it did for you. How dare you? They bristled at that, and he said, let me prove it to you. The stars at night are big and bright. (laughs) Exactly. He said, I knew you could not do it. Thus train seals. You can't hide where you're from. Let me tell you, friends, the vision statement and the core values that we'll talk about this morning are not new to us. They are as old as the word of God itself. That's why we're taking this morning to re-anchor ourselves and to say this is who we intend to be. For the Apostle Paul in Philippians as a whole, but especially chapter 3, he pauses to do the exact same thing. There's a lot of push in the Apostle Paul's life when he writes Philippians There are other competing values and people telling him he needed to to take the church and the gospel in particular directions, but the Apostle Paul wants none of that. That's why he begins the way he does in chapter 3, verse 8. I count everything as loss. If you read the first seven verses of that chapter, then you'll see that he lists off the things that are things worthy of note. His background, his heritage, the things that he counts as value up to this point, 
but now he lays all of it aside. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. He's inviting you to make two stacks, one of all the things that he lists in the first seven verses, and the second stack, that which is Christ himself. And he says, you can have everything in that first one because it's worthless when you compare it to the other. Knowing Christ is all that matters. Not only knowing Christ, but making him known. All over this campus, we've hung signs that say to know Christ and make him known. One of the problems we have with that is it can become like furniture. We just walk past it and pay no attention to it. Except in cases where push comes to shove as it does in the second half of verse eight. For Christ's sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So this gift of righteousness that I have is not mine. It is a gift that God has given to me through Christ. What does that mean for us as a church? It means this, this righteousness that we have is not ours. It is Christ's that he has given to us. In another place, the apostle talks of it as a robe, a robe placed on our shoulders. It isn't something that we've earned or deserved. It is something he's granted to us because of who he is. Our response, faith, trusting that robe. Now, if you've been given a robe and it's cold, you're grateful. But if you've been given a robe and you're not cold or don't realize how cold it is, you might just throw it aside. The Apostle Paul wants to make sure we don't know that and we don't make that mistake. That's why he calls it out the way he does in verses 8 and 9. And that's why it brings him to verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. This word know, I want to invite you to underline it. It has with it the connotation of something far deeper than mere head knowledge. You see, there's a lot of different ways in Greek to say knowledge. You can use it in the sense of I recognize something as true, even if it has no bearing on my life. Or you can have it as an acknowledgement that these facts exist, sort of like gravity. The term that he chooses here, though, is one far deeper than that. It's an experiential knowledge that calls for my participation. It calls for me to engage in it. It calls for me to say, this is what I know because of what I've experienced, that I may know him experientially and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings. One of the greatest problems we have with the modern church is we want the first part of that, the power of his resurrection, but not the last part of it, his sufferings. We want to take on the power, we just don't want the sufferings. It says like we're at a buffet line. We don't have many cafeterias here anymore, but for those of you that are old enough to remember Furs and Luby's, one of my greatest joys when I would go to one of those places is to walk past the liver and onions. When I was growing up, my dad made me try it every year. I guess he thought he would wear me down. 
He would cook it and funkify the whole house where it stunk like liver for a couple of weeks. And it was always a joy to me to see that on the, the, the buffet and walk right past it, knowing I didn't have to have it this time. Captain of my own soul, you might say. Walking with Christ is not like that. We don't get to walk through the line and say, give me a double helping of the power of his resurrection, but hold the sufferings because that's not for me. They come together, friends. And those sufferings, they lead us to truths we might not find otherwise. I think many of us remember when I was sick in 2017. Friends, let me tell you, I learned more about the power of the resurrection of Christ in that season of my life than I ever knew before. The power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The Apostle Paul is calling us to join him, to be guided by grace and peace and let our faith anchor us. That's what's led us to some of the things that I'm about to share with you. Let's start here. What is it that we say is our vision statement? What are the things that we count most? Let me just read it for you as it comes up on the screen. You'll find it all over the building and on many things that we print. Led by the Holy Spirit. Pause right there. This is the church of Jesus Christ, not just First Baptist Church. It is his church, not mine and not yours. We are but stewards of it. And it is the Holy Spirit that will lead it. Led by the Holy Spirit, the mission of First Baptist Church is to follow the example of Jesus Christ. Hard stop. One of the things that is our most compelling thing is to go back to verses 10 and 11, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection, may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the example that he set for us. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he talks about this is the calling that we've been given to walk with Christ and to follow his steps. If Christ suffered, we should expect the same. The next line follows up on that. It does not compete with it, for it is a subsidiary of the first line. The Holy Spirit and the work of Christ and the example that he's provided are our compass. They are our true north. That leads us to the second part. To leave a legacy of faith, we'll worship, disciple, and fellowship where we are in order we may evangelize and serve where God leads. Out of this statement, we draw several core values. Let's talk about them. These are the things that we say, if we don't get anything else right, if we don't do anything else, then let's do these things. Prayer. It's our most private value, but it's the most powerful. In another writing, the Apostle Paul says, pray without ceasing. This doesn't mean walk around with your eyes closed, constantly mumbling to the Lord. 
It has with it the idea to live in a constant state of communication with the Lord, where when you say amen, you don't walk away from the conversation. It's just a pause, not a break. One of the most central responsibilities and privileges is that ongoing communication with God. Immediately, some have gone to sleep. If I want to kill a meeting, I'll do it in one of two ways. We're going to have a prayer meeting and everybody who comes will pray aloud. Or the other way, we're going to go knocking doors and tell people about Jesus. If I want to stifle a meeting, then I'll say one of those two things. And yet, what is it that is the most foundational thing for us? Prayer. It's a conversation, us speaking to God and God speaking back. It means that he knows the truth and I share that with him. You might say, you know, Darren, I don't even know how to pray. Let me give you four things that will get you started. One, begin with humility. Begin with humility. In Luke 18, we have the story that Jesus shares of the Pharisee and the sinner. They're both coming to pray, but in very different ways. The Pharisee comes self-righteously, thanking God for who he isn't. The sinner comes humbly, thanking God that who he is is enough in God's presence. Begin with humility. Second, speak to God honestly and often. He already knows the truth, no sense hiding it from him. Even if it's hard to say, and there are times when it will be hard to say, but that's the moment that you most need to pray. Tell him, because he longs to hear it. Third, make confession a regular part of your prayer life. When you recognize you've made a mistake, seek the forgiveness of Christ and you'll find it. 1 John 1, 9 makes that much clear. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive them. Finally, offer thanks freely. When one thanks God, it is an acknowledgement that he is the source of our blessing. Too many times we want to take credit for what God has done. want to claim it for ourselves. Today, I want you to remind, be reminded that one of our core values, prayer, calls us to recognize we have nothing. It's all his. It would be the height of folly to pray, talk about prayer without actually praying. So let's go to the Lord in prayer right now. Lord Jesus, this is your church and always has been. Should you delay your coming, it always will be. It's not that that's new information, Lord. It's just that we are pausing now to be reminded of the importance of talking to you. Far too often, Lord, we're too interested in talking to others about you instead of you. Let us instead, Lord Jesus, rejoice that we can talk to you directly. 
No need for somebody between you and us. Your invitation is to come boldly, and so here we are. As we set out on this fall, Lord Jesus, this new school year and new opportunity for all kinds of services, Lord, we ask that you, Lord, would guide our hearts and our minds. We're grateful, Jesus, for who you are. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's talk about the second core value, worship. It's our most public value. An ancient word, it means to acknowledge worth. It means that we recognize just how worthy God is by gathering to proclaim such. The things that we worship, we fixate on. We allow our minds to soak on it. We think about it. We talk about it. Maybe even annoy others with it. The core truth is this. We were created as worshipers. We're going to worship something, even if it's ourselves. Most people are worshiping things that are not eternal. And then they're surprised when that that they're worshiping lets them down, can't sustain them, can't empower them. But with our core value of worshiping God, we understand our place, and more importantly, we understand his, and that leads us to worship. Been a pastor a long time now. Been to a lot of services. And there's a lot of different ways people come to worship. Some of them come with arms crossed. You can't make me encounter God, and I'm happy about it. You're right, I can't. Any more than I can put you in a garage and make you a car. But our intent is to lead people you in a free-flowing exaltation of God for who he is, for what he's done, for us personally and for us together. It doesn't just mean singing. It doesn't just mean singing songs you like. It means worshiping because you recognize that's who he's made you to be. In a conversation with a woman very confused, In John chapter 4, Jesus says God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Well, how do you do that? Here's a couple of things you can do. One, invite God to dominate your thinking. God declares worship is reserved uniquely and singularly for him, so let him have that place. Here's a second thing. Your worship should be something you are not something you do. If the only time you're worshiping is when you're in our building, you're doing it wrong. Friends, I want you to take worship home with you. Third and finally, focus your worship on God and who he is, not your preferences. This, friends, will lead us to the worship Jesus called for. Let's move on to the third core value, evangelism. Matthew 28, Jesus declaring to his people, to the disciples standing before him, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The Great Commission is both progressive, as you're going, and imperative. 
get it done. Put these two together and it means it's something that I must do, not something I can choose not to. It compels me to speak of Christ and how he's changed my life. It's the least comfortable thing we can do because after all, your parents probably like mine said, don't talk about religion or politics. But if we absolutely believe that the most important thing is a person's relationship with Christ, how can we not talk about it, even if it makes them uncomfortable? Friends, today, I want to encourage you to recognize the power of the word evangelism. Oh, I know it's been given a black eye in recent days, but go back to what it means. Good news. Good news. They say good news doesn't sell. I think it does now. If we've ever needed good news, friends, it's this. Well, I don't even know how to talk to people about Jesus, Darren. Start with what Jesus has done in you. And if you can't tell that, then by all means, let's talk. Because that may mean that God hasn't done what he wants in your life yet. Like blind Bartimaeus or Zacchaeus, let us proclaim how Jesus has changed us. This, friends, is the core of evangelism, how Jesus changed me. Here's another way you can do it. Invite them to join you at church. We will faithfully proclaim the word of God and worship him each and every Sunday. We will do so until the Lord returns. Friends, this, this is your easiest way to do evangelism. 99% of people, and that, I'm just throwing that number out there, I don't have any research to go with it. 99% of people come not because of great preaching or wonderful music, but because a friend invited them. Friends, I want you to be that friend. Not the one who blocked Bartimaeus' path. Be quiet, Jesus doesn't have time for you. Not the ones who stood in Zacchaeus' way. Stinks to be so short, doesn't it, Zacchaeus? But rather to be the one like Andrew who brought his brother Simon Peter to Jesus. Be an Andrew. Let's talk about our fourth core value, missions. It's our most extended value. When Jesus left to go to heaven, he left us with specific direction. Let me read it for you in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit's come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. For us at FBC, this is something we've always held dear. When we were founded, we were a frontier town. Missions was a part of who we are. Now, 136 years later, we're not done yet. It's always been something we do. Just this last Wednesday, I got a reminder of that. We had a person who asked to be baptized on Wednesday night. You'll see their baptism at a future service. How did they come to us? Through our English as a second language ministry. Friends, this is working. We partner with ministries all over the Permian Basin. Let's talk about a couple of them. Fields Edge down in the southwest part of town, seeking to provide homes for the homeless. Fairhaven, seeking to help single mothers and children find a new way. 
the Baptist Crisis Center, Midland Soup Kitchen, the Life Center, Teen Flow, China Aid, Reach China, Watch and Pray. All of these ministries are local to us, even if they serve a much broader constituency, but they represent our heart to connect with and serve just like Jesus sent us to. It's not just here we're serving, though. We're serving outside of the Permian, too. In Toronto, we're engaged in pastoral support and church planning. In El Paso, the Hands of Luke Medical Ministry. In Big Spring, we're partners with a deaf church. Life Recovered, a ministry run by Jimmy Story, one of, our, one of the young men who grew up in our church, is serving ministers who need counseling. Friends, it is not just the Permian Basin we're trying to serve. Around the world, we're serving all over. Our brother, Gitana Gitana. If you don't know Gitana, you're missing out. He is Ethiopian, but he's one of ours, a member of this church and a part of our body. I am blessed to call him a friend. He serves the lost and the pastors of East Africa. Likewise, in Nairobi, Kenya, we work with many ministries that are partnered there. We partner with Arab Baptist Seminary in Beirut, Lebanon, B.H. Carroll Seminary serving in Vietnam. We serve with our friend Eugene, operating a, 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 a ministry and a seminary in Moldova, Heart of the Bride Ministries in Haiti. We partner with our friend Greg Smith, another one who grew up in our church, equipping pastors worldwide through his ministry in step. All told, there are more than 80 partners that we share a direct one-to-one -one relationship with. That doesn't count the ministries that we partner with through our relationship with the Baptist General Convention of Texas, the Southern Baptist Convention, where we partner with thousands more. Many will find reasons not to go. Others will send money ahead, and they'll say, I've done my part by funding it. But I want to ask you a question, friends. Why can't we fund it and go? Perhaps the Lord is calling us, not to somewhere far away, but to our neighbor. Let us move on quickly. Community, our connecting value, the things that tie us together. Used to be the term fellowship, that's what King James has at that point. You'll find it in Acts chapter two, verses 42 through the end of the chapter. It's a linking moment where lives are intersected and tied together. Now the word fellowship means meal provided. What we desire for this church is not just to be a place where you can come and get a meal, although that's good too. It's where you can find a faith community, connecting lives, serving, loving one another. We won't always agree, and we won't always get along, but we'll always love each other. At least that's what I'm hoping. We saw in 2020 and even part of 21 what it was like to not be together. I don't know about you, but I don't want to go back through that again. We belong together. We belong together even if it's difficult. And friends, I want to encourage you to recognize the power that's in that. Now, our last value, discipleship. It's our ever-growing value. You hear me talk about this when we talk about the first step of Christian obedience, baptism. 
Far too many people. That's the only step they ever take in their Christian walk. They get that box marked and they're done with it. Friends, if that's your true definition of discipleship, it is far too shallow. It is akin to standing in the wading pool while the ocean stands in front of you. Yes, there are depths in the ocean that are frightening, just like there are truths in the word of God that are difficult. But friends, God is not asking you to take that journey alone. Discipleship partners with community. One of my favorite parts of being a part of this church is the intersection between lives. We learn best when we see it exemplified. You are discipling someone. To what end and what purpose? There's one last value that's not on our list, but it is definitely a part of this church. Call it a bonus value, if you will. Generosity. Jesus said in Luke 6, 38, give and it'll be given to you. They'll pour into your lap a good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. For by the standard of measure, it'll be measured to you in return. Of all the qualities that I've ever known, from the first days I've heard of this church, which was in the late 80s, all I've ever heard is how generous this church is. Thank you for being that. This is who you are. Your generosity enables all the other core values to come together. Let me implore you to recognize that. But generosity, it doesn't begin with your wallet or your checkbook. It begins with your heart. It begins within. It's been a big year in Midland in a whole lot of ways. I want to encourage you to keep that generous value rolling. Now, we've arrived at the end. Sum it all up, Darren. What does it mean? My friend Daniel Vestal, when he was here a few weeks ago, was kind enough to give me a couple hours. We sat in my office and visited. I should say his office. I'm the Johnny come lately. We sat in there and talked, and he asked me a question. Darren, who will reach Midland for Christ? Before I could even respond, I felt like the word of the Lord was in my mouth. I will. That's the theme for the fall, friends. Who will reach Midland for Christ? I will. Who will serve the least of these in Midland? I will. Who will speak up for Christ and his kingdom? I will. Who will put hands and feet to Jesus' commission? I will. Who will take the gospel to the oil fields, to the offices? I will. Who will welcome those who come to worship? I will. Who will take time to read the word of God and let it speak into their lives? I will. Who will spend time in prayer? I will. Who will lead their family and trust in God's provision and protection? I will. Who will seek to bring God's glory to Midland and the Permian Basin? I will. I want to ask you, friends, is that your statement too? My prayer is it will be. My prayer is that you too will stand up and say, I will. I rolled it out to our, our staff at our retreat on Tuesday and I said to them, this is what we're going to 
put to feet this fall. I will. Doesn't mean I'll wait for somebody else to do it. I will. Doesn't mean I'll tell that the others that what needs to be done, I'll do it. This, friends, is what I think these core values lead us to. I will. Perhaps you've heard in this talk something that has pricked your heart. Now, I know we've not done the invitation the way we've done it the last couple of weeks in a long time, and maybe you've forgotten how it works. So let me just help you, all right? That's my job is helping and serving people. If the Spirit of God has spoken to you and is moving in your heart in whatever fashion, here's what you do when we stand up. You walk down here to the front in front of God and everybody and talk to us about what that looks like. Maybe you don't even know what to say except God is speaking to me, help me figure it out. That's what we do. That's what God has called us to do. And we are answering, I will. Maybe you have something on your heart and mind. You saw the baptisms at the beginning of the service and you'd said, hey, that's for me. I need to do that. And here's what I want you to do. When we stand up, you start moving. Come down and let's talk. Maybe, just maybe, the Spirit of God is inviting you to this altar. Oh, I know it's challenging, and there'll be whispers as you come. What are they going down for? They must have a real problem. I'll tell you right now, I do. Uh, I'll just be honest with you. I do. These challenging days that we're in the midst of, there's no clear direction through it. Friends, today, it's not a matter of who has a challenge, it's what the challenge is. Perhaps you'd say, hey, I need the Spirit of God to move in my life, and I don't care who knows it. When you get to a point of desperation, you don't care. That's what I'm praying for for us as a church. That we'll stop being so worried about what others think while all the time ignoring what God already knows. Today, friends, is your chance for decision. Pray with me. So Jesus, today, we answer. We answer the word of who will with I will. My prayer today, Jesus, is that you would make clear in our hearts what we need to be and what we need to do. These are challenging days in a whole lot of ways, Lord. Thank you that you're right in the midst of it with us. All we want is to know you and make you known. So now in this invitation time, Lord Jesus, we give that to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.